Hello, friends. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch, your Mr. Robot recap show, brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Devlin, and I'm rejoined by Aaron. It's good to have you back. You were just on a trip out to New York. Do you have any cool stories for us? Well, one story I thought uh, our listeners might appreciate is I did go to see uh, The Charging Bull. Oh, yeah, yeah. I totally thought that you would. Uh, and so it's weird because tourists line up to take photos with it, right? So they do two. Two are very popular. One, they take their face beside the bull's face. But apparently people also grab the bull's balls for good luck. I think that they do that in the show at one point, don't they? Take some selfies with it? I think they do because uh, – but I just thought like watching all these people just like grabbing this bull, I was like – this is the second greatest joke capitalism <laughs> has ever played. <laughs> Did you get to see um, what's the girl? Oh yeah, the little girl is still there, but pissing pug has been removed. It was only there for like a day, I think. Yeah, I it think was actually so. paper mache. Oh really? Yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that I thought people might get a get a kick out of that. I uh, I was gonna put on my mask and take a photo, but I thought that might just everybody out. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of uh, anxious about those masks you now that they're being portrayed as terrorists in the show. <laughs> yeah, you know, so yeah, you know, missed opportunity there, but uh, New York's cool. We have actually one of our top cities for listeners is Brooklyn, so I stayed in Brooklyn. Shout out to Brooklyn. It was great. <laughs> I'm trying to think of some kind of Biggie lyrics reference right now, but I'm kind of on the spot. I saw the Biggie mural. That was also cool. That's pretty fantastic. Oh my god, so this is the last episode of the season. And there's a track in this that you really liked. Oh yeah, it's actually one of my favorite albums ever. This song is called Intro by M83. You know, it's hard going into the last episode knowing that after this we're going to have to wait for more robot. Especially as going into it, I think that they hadn't even renewed it for season four yet, right? One thing I like about this episode, though, is that um, unlike some other season finales that kind of try and leave you on a cliffhanger, they answer a lot of unresolved questions. And also the pacing is great because they just get right into it with Grant reading Elliot's apartment. This is what his plan was after he had spoken with White Rose at the end of the last episode. Grant, actually, the actor is also named Grant. Oh, interesting. Uh, and he's been very cool. He's been doing a lot of uh, podcast spots and stuff. So he's very cool for engaging with uh, Robot Nation and all those folks out there. But I like his character less, less uh, as, as, <laughs> as the episode starts, where they're at Elliot's apartment and they're just they're tossing the place. Yeah, because now they're trying to find him and I guess also Darlene. But importantly, Elliot's not there. He's hiding in that adjacent room where uh, Darlene had camped out before. Right. So he's hiding out in Shayla's old apartment. Uh, he waits for them to leave. And then he's very worried that they've actually already got Darlene. And so he's hoping that she's actually made it to the meeting place they had prearranged. So as this uh, scene comes to a close, there's a shot that emphasizes one of the blank CDs that had fallen out of Elliot's uh What's that thing called? Binder? Yeah. yeah. Binder. How about that? Um, and this reminded me earlier in last season, as in season two, uh, when Elliot goes down to that disc repair place where he first meets White Rose, that store is called Blank's Disc. Oh, is it? Yes. 
and that that CD is going to come back, uh, and we can talk a little bit more about the encryption that they use uh, when we get to that moment. Darlene, of course, has not made it to the rendezvous point, uh, as we know from the last episode, because she is handcuffed in an FBI interrogation room. Yeah, not really a good place to be for Darlene right now. Santiago comes in, and it seems like at first that he's being cooperative with her. Like, that's what she thinks, that they're going to go unlock the Sentinel system and um, start decrypting all of E-Corp's data. But actually, he's uh, trying to kidnap her. Yeah, this is bad news bears when he walks in. Um, he turns off the camera, and nothing good ever happens once that camera gets turned off. Yeah. Um, so he's he's going to take her on his own to wherever she's being taken. Very luckily, meanwhile, Dom is passing some work that she had done off to her colleague. Do you remember what his name was? Ark, I think. Cool. Yeah, and uh, he says that he's actually not been assigned to Darlene's case when Santiago had indicated that he would be at the end of the last episode. So it's clear now that that was just a trick for him to get Dom out of the picture. And I think that Dom has kind of caught on to this. Yeah, Darlene is lucky that after everything that's happened that, uh, like, Dom is a smart cookie and, you know, she's still invested in saving Darlene. You know, whatever her personal feelings are about her at that moment, she knows it's the right thing to do to find out whatever's going on. Because that's pretty shady. (laughs) Yeah, you could say that. She ends up catching them just before they leave in a parking lot. You know, actually, all of this thing happens, like, at the exact perfect times that they all needed to happen. It's a a pretty big coincidence that Darlene wasn't just killed here. She wasn't killed because Santiago has her in the back of his car in the parking garage, and that's when Dom confronts him. I think that Dom kind of has a bit of trust for Darlene, actually, in this moment. And previously, she had said that uh, the FBI had been penetrated by the Dark Army. So now maybe she's kind of uh, piecing all those facts together. I think, I mean, aside from the betrayal, you know, I think Dom has always had kind of a genuine care for Darlene. So I, I think... You know, she and, and she's just not the kind of person that wants to see someone killed in some sort of weird extrajudicial killing. So very fair. Dom tries to kind of call him out. She says that they should take it to the ADIC. That's the assistant director in charge. Thank you for Googling that because I totally didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Googs. Um, <laughs> Santiago at first tries to play her right to say, you know, that it's just she's not privy to all the information. She doesn't understand. There's no need for her to intercept this or interrupt him transporting Darlene himself. Um, She's not that easily persuaded, though, and that's when he um, just knocks her out cold in the parking garage. Yeah, it's kind of brutal. I think that I would start to be afraid if he had started to advance on me like that. Like, there's no good way for that to end. No, but it happens too fast. Like, And I think, too, I mean, Dom fundamentally trusts the system. So in her mind, there's cameras everywhere. You know, how could it go unnoticed? You know, I don't think she's aware how deep the corruption has permeated the organization. That's kind of a question that's raised later, and maybe I'm getting ahead, but I wonder if that surveillance footage that's talked about here will come into play in a subsequent season, or if Irvin will come clean it up before they have an opportunity. Oh, I think there's going to have to be some cleanup work. <laughs> I think that's uh, that's what's going to have to happen here, but we'll talk more about that um, later on in the episode. Um, meanwhile... Let's move back to Elliot. Elliot's gone back to the arcade. That was the meeting point. And, you know, he finds, of course, that Darlene was not there. Yeah, he's starting to get really worried for her. There's some very intense camera work here that I think is supposed to portray to you how distressed Elliot is about the situation. Well, and he thinks that the Dark Army has her, uh, which, not a bad guess, Elliot. Um, <laughs> so I also think his knuckles really took a beating this season. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he really, so he kind of busts up the place, um, 
and he's really searching for like any kind of clue or any kind of intuition anything he can think of to begin to piece this together it deteriorates into that that negative feeling he has about his own personal responsibility right because he's thinking you know she's going to be killed like everybody else that was close to him has been killed and that you know this is on this is on him yeah by now it is practically everybody when you think about it if society is sort of dismantled in that way that's true and so his best hunch here and this is kind of a nice visual callback uh, to some of the earlier episodes of the series. He gets up in the Ferris wheel, and that's when we see him talking with Mr. Robot for the first time in a long time. I thought there were a few awesome uh, homages to the pilot in this episode. Uh, it made me wonder if this was if it was so easy to summon Mr. Robot, then why haven't they talked sooner? Or maybe that's a bit about what they talk about. It is kind of what they talk about, because Elliot says he hasn't been letting them talk, right? So he's been trying to keep them separated. And part of what he expresses there is that he was feeling afraid of him. And after that part where, you know, Mr. Rock keeps hurling their body into walls <laughs> and trying to sabotage and destroy him, um, you can't blame him. Uh, and also, I think Elliot had an uncertainty up to this moment about whether Mr. Robot thought that blowing up the 71 buildings was an okay thing to do. I think that Mr. Robot indicates that he would have preferred to go a different way. I think a lot of this episode is also about redemption for Mr. Robot. There's a part later in this episode I'll talk about that doesn't really feel true to me or helpful to me in terms of storytelling. But I think here, um, you know, we get that reassurance that Mr. Robot wouldn't have just gratuitously killed all, all of those people. He would have found a different way. And part of that was, you know, him. remember that note he leaves, he writes in soap on the mirror. Part of that was flagging to Elliot that the FBI was also compromised. Elliot asks what that note meant, and Mr. Robot is, you know, as explicit as to say the FBI has them all. Yeah, it's really spelled out clear as day for Elliot at this point. Now let's move back to Santiago, who's driving. Um, he's got both women in the back seat of the car now. There are hands. I've got that zip tie. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Around them, uh, and it looks like they're in the middle of the woods somewhere. What did you think about um, Grace Gummer's, like, wake-up acting? It seemed kind of silly to me. I mean, it's just interesting because Dom is always so collected. And so for her to come out swinging, I don't know if I don't know if I felt like that was exactly the strategy she would have chosen. But maybe she thinks it's hopeless and she's just going to die there. And so she might as well kind of call him out on <laughs> yeah. what he knows and what he's done. And it also kind of serves as a bit of um, a storytelling device because she's spelling out everything that Santiago has done. Just so it's very clear to us that he's been up to no good for quite a while now. Exactly. So the China attack, Cisco's death, everything with Tyrell Wellick, framing poor sweet Trenton and Mobley, all of that, that's on him. This episode, and not until the end, to be honest, is the first time I ever have any kind of compassion for him. Yeah, because he kind of tries to justify his actions by saying that the Dark Army has some leverage over him. And of course, um, I think it's hinted that that's his mother, and that's why they had characterized the relationship in earlier episodes. So I think that especially um, because he's been a bit of a, a shithead so far, and they try not to have characters who are just outright evil or outright good, they're trying to inject some moral ambiguity into his character, so it seems a little more deep. I think so too, and I think they do a good job of that. Like, There's no one in this series who is purely good. Everyone's got dirty hands here. Um, but in most of the villains, if I can call them that, there is also some spark of humanity. And I think they do a good job of letting us hate him for a long <laughs> time. And what's really ominous here is, you know, he says to Dom that she'll understand all of this soon enough. And very notably, Dom says that there is nothing that would make her betray her ideals. 
so dumb. She can be so sophisticated, but so also idealist sometimes, you know? So let's cut back now. This is Elliot and Mr. Robot. So Tyrell had told Mr. Robot about Santiago. Um, Elliot has already been through all of his digital stuff. They haven't found anything to help. So are they tossing his office or his house? It looked like his office, I thought. You um, can be confused. One thing I really like here, there are actually a couple of really humorous moments in this episode. And like a self-referential humor that I think we don't often get. But they find a red wheelbarrow menu. Mm-hmm. And Elliot says, oh, a cipher code. And Mr. Robot says... Not this shit. <laughs> <laughs> they have um, like reused that meme a couple times now, huh? Yeah, I think so. And the thing is, I like it when they use yeah. it, but I like them having a bit of a sense of humor about themselves. I think I agree with that too, because it hints back to when we first saw that Santiago had flipped, and he was complaining about how they always use like numbers and codes to give him orders. Yeah, right. Um, Irving is there. He interrupts them. Yes. I can't see what book Irving is holding. I tried to clarify that, but if any listeners out there happen to know, I'd be really curious. Um, Me the, too, because I didn't look that up either. The other, the other kind of joke in this scene is, you know, um, and this might be, I think, a bit of a reference to, you know, the last couple of episodes have been slower paced and mm-hmm. kind of less thrillery. And he says, you know, a book can have an okay intro and an okay middle, but it's got to have a wow ending. It's <laughs> well, really got to have a wow. <laughs> You know, somehow I didn't really clue in the fact that they're very obviously referring to themselves there. Yeah, I think it's quite whimsical. And actually, I did check um, over the last couple of episodes, the viewership has slightly dropped. Mm -hmm. So I think those episodes were a little bit less popular, which is too bad. I think there's some great emotional storytelling in those ones. I thought that it was more like a character in world building. Yeah, exactly. And I think they're going to need that for four um, because really the original storyline has basically been exhausted, right? They've got to start car- breaking new ground here. Oh, hey, you know, that uh, reminds me of something that I wanted to mention earlier. The name of this episode is um, Shutdown R, and Shutdown is a command that you can run to shut down a computer, obviously, but if you pass in the dash R argument, it reboots the computer instead of shutting it down. So in a way, this episode's title is about rebooting. Oh, that's a good catch. So things get kind of confusing here because there are interspersed scenes taking place in the barnyard and also at uh, what we presume is White Rose's place. So let's talk about what's happening with Angela. So at first when I see her, I assume she might have been in like a real fancy psychiatric facility. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like I was like, oh, is this like a sanatorium? Like. But she was just taken there by like randoms off the street. Well, I, th- I assume they might have been sent by someone. Oh. And, like, of course, we do find out someone did send them to retreat yes. her. So hired goons from a benefactor. Yeah, like, they're like the men in white coats, you <laughs> know? Uh, they ask how she slept. She did not sleep all night because she is so eager to see White Rose. And I think you're right. I assume now that perhaps it's like, oh, is this White Rose's house? Because the person who's talking to her introduces themselves as the house manager. Yeah, well... Previously, when she's had to speak to White Rose, it's been 5M abducting her on the subway. So right before those people abducted her, actually, she was talking about going to the subway just to get picked up by then. So I think that her plan has been to be abducted by White Rose so they can have a discussion with her. I would like to know why her hair is better than mine on a good day, even when she's having like a total mental collapse. (laughs) Well, you can kind of see how her descent kind of uh, progresses because her hair gets worse and worse. Yeah, but still good. Still pretty damn good. Um, we learned that Price is coming. So 
So I guess they're his goons. Yes. The only thing I had for that housekeeper scene was super awkward. Yeah, it's super awkward. Do you like pancakes? <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> so Angela's kind of waiting outside in a courtyard. Price says that he was worried about her, and that's why he sent those people. But she wants to leave because she's supposed to be with White Rose, who has the plan. Capital T, capital P plan. (laughs) The way I noted this was that Price is intervening because she's straight nutso. Yeah, well, she hasn't been showing up to work. She hasn't been answering his messages. Why would she, of course? And Price, this is also the first time I ever have any uh, feeling that's less than totally negative about Price. (laughs) One thing I want to say about both of these characters, though, is that the acting is just incredible. I'm glad that um, the actor who portrays Price, who I should totally know by now, um, I'm glad that they're getting more um, like a more emphasis placed on their character and that they also get to have a more uh, large range of emotions that they portray. Yeah, I think it is a good show of his range because he really does a good job here of, I think at first he kind of gently tries, but then eventually really has to break the news to her that, you know, the whole reason she's as deep into this mess as she is, is that he had her hired to get the lawsuit killed. Yeah, so this ties back to way earlier in the series. I like how confrontational Angela is here, right? She's like, you don't care about me, you don't care about anyone but you. Well, what does she have to lose at this point? It's just that she's a captive, basically, right? So I'm kind of surprised in a way that she's as direct with him as she is. (laughs) But I think that's maybe in keeping with how emboldened she's become. So before we get too far, one thing I want to note is that Price understands who Angela is talking about when she just says, like, she and, uh, like, uses female pronouns, which Price does as well, referring to White Rose. And the reason I think that's important is that I think in every scene we've seen so far, Price has only ever interacted with White Rose, um, like, appearing as Minister Zhang. So this hints that they've known about White Rose's female identity this whole time. Ooh, that's a good catch, too. I did not pick up on that. The cynic in me thinks that this next scene was kind of written to be timed with the release of the Star Wars movie that was just released. <laughs> it is referred to as a Star Wars fan theory. Um, apparently, I did a little bit of reading, and apparently this was decided on some way partway through season two. Oh. Because they were going to potentially shape it up as like a sexual relationship between the two, or they weren't sure, the writers weren't sure what they wanted to do, and eventually kind of came to this idea that he would in fact be her biological father and have some kind of paternal care for her. I find that so interesting because I had thought that um, this show, which originated as a film but was too long, that's what happens with TV series, if I remember right, I would have thought that they had it all planned start to finish already. So making big changes like that is surprising to me. I think it, yeah, it's kind of interesting that to know that it is uh, a dynamic mm-hmm. and so that the story is taking shape Um, as we're viewing it and not necessarily predetermined from the outset. Yeah. So another thing is that Price, um, he explains that he loved Angela's mother. And we remember that this this whole series, really, Angela's main motivation in her character arc is to be reunited with her mother. And now we see that Price kind of also had a, um, a horse in that game. Is that what you call that? Horse in that race. Horse in that race. I probably shouldn't refer to his wife as a horse, but um, this shows that like he also had a very personal relationship with Angela's mom, and presumably he would also be really upset about what had happened to her as a result of her work on the plant. I don't see how that guy ever let her get a student loan. Like I, <laughs> I, I think he he should have stepped up to the plate a little bit. Before yeah, him, you know, you especially know? because uh, the, like this kind of reveals that he's that anonymous benefactor who um, was mentioned earlier in the season. So it seems like he just straight up abandoned Angela as soon as Emily died. <laughs> when did that be? 
<laughs> what a deadbeat. Um, he does characterize White Rose as basically being totally delusional and says that she has psychotic fantasies about this outcome, which makes me think that as much as White Rose is manipulating people around her to achieve her objectives, that she also has buy-in. She believes some of this really far out thinking that she, uh, you know, is promoting to others. So I still think that they are hinting at that kind of sci-fi angle very strongly. You remember that I am not really a big fan of that, but I think, um, or rather I wonder if this discussion is meant to kind of put a stop to that and the kind of twists that happened in this episode is that the twist we expected to happen is actually not going to happen. Does that make sense? I think it does, right? Because I know a lot of people were not really on board for this sort of more sci-fi twist of it, but the idea of kind of a delusional leader with so much access to power is a really interesting story. So I'm sort of interested in the direction they're taking it, I guess. Yes. And I'm also sort of interested in the direction Angela's taking it, because I think that she's sort of begins to accept reality a bit and begins to accept her responsibility in this catastrophic attack. And the first thing she wants is to get revenge on White Rose. That's right. She wants retribution. And she also says that she has to believe there was a purpose because now she realizes that she's helped carry out violence on thousands of innocent bystanders. One thing I find, and this is, I think, where we see kind of a nice fatherly moment from Price is where he says, you know, basically find a way to live with what you've done and move on with your life. You know, he, he doesn't blame or attack her, um, but he says, you know, you're going to have to come to a place of acceptance. And, and I mean, I assume he's done some horrible shit in his time too. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, we remember that quote that he told to Angela way earlier in this season, sorry, way earlier in the series, actually, because I think it was last season where he says um, it's important to remove emotion. Do you remember what I'm talking about? I'm not sure I do. The dinner where she's offered the discs to turn in those guys. Right. Right, right. And so I think he's encouraging her to try to do that and move along with her life. Cool. So I think that that is the end of Angela's storyline for this episode. So do you want to head to the barn scene? Yeah. And so these are, they're interspersed the way the editing is done. It's very dramatic. Of course, mm -hmm. we're just condensing the story here. Uh, for the purposes of our own storytelling. So one thing I want to note is that um, actually it was a, a Rada Yorka fan this out, so I'm not going to take credit for it. And I probably should have found their names so I could give them credit. Sorry to whoever that was. <laughs> but um, if you remember way back earlier in the season or earlier in the series, which I've said like 15 times now, I'm kind of setting a broken record. I had wondered why they had put so much focus on the two paintings outside Krista's office. Yeah. And I think that those were um, paintings of the barn that they're on now. Well, and I also assumed this was the safe house that Tyrell had lived at. Is that building beside the barn? I think so, too, because of the uh, axe, which is kind of like a good landmark. So in this barn, they have uh, Darlene, Dom, Santiago, Leon, and now Grant and his entourage are arriving. So right now, and there's also a couple of uh, Dark Army hired goons. They're kind of there. There's a lot of masks in this episode. Mm -hmm. um, I like here Santiago is quite desperate to control the situation. And I think we have a really classic, some really classic Irving uh -huh <laughs> in here. Um, this is a great episode for Irving, but we can get into that later. This is a truly great episode for Irving. There's one scene I'm, we're going to come to or <laughs> it's like, he's just, I don't know. He's, I have newfound respect and also newfound understanding of his position in this whole organization after this. Yes. 
Uh, Irving calls Santiago and Dom outside, and I'm so scared when he does that. Well, they do a really, really good job of leading you to believe that this is the end for Dom. And she's kind of trying to bargain for her life by suggesting that Santiago has made too many mistakes to be a reliable mole. And maybe they should uh, scrap him instead of her. Now, so let's talk about what happens outside, and then we can talk about what happens inside? Yeah, that sounds good. So the first moment where I actually... No, I guess it's the second moment where I have some um, warmer feelings about Santiago is that he tries to save Dom. Yeah. So he tries to talk his way out of the situation by saying she's a rising star. You know, she could be useful to them. There's no need to kill her in this abandoned woodlot, even though Dom doesn't really help her own cause here. (laughs) No, this reminded me, like so many things in the show, reminded me of Breaking Bad, the famous um, Ozymandias scene where they're trying to... um, like talk Hank out of a, a vulnerable situation, but he refuses to abandon his ideals and ends up kind of suffering the consequences. Another thing, did you ever see or read uh, Watchmen? No. It's really good. There's a character in it whose name is uh, Rorsach, and that's how that's pronounced, right? Like the inkblot test? Rorschach. Yeah, that. Okay. So all of the characters in that are basically intended to be metaphors for different kind of like philosophies on life. And Rorsach, or whatever, has a kind of very black and white look in things. And this is going to spoil a bit of it, but um, he ends up kind of being unable to participate in a lie that ends up costing him his life because he's just too honest. Oh, and so that's exactly what Dom decides to do right here. Exactly. Maybe she saw the movie. <laughs> Watching Irving undressing to get ready for what's about to happen is horrible because he's so chill about it and you feel like it takes so long and i think that we're surprised when he turns around well at first he tries to brace dom right so look at the sky take a deep breath and then santiago gets the axe instead yeah you never really hear like getting axed used so literally oh my god and does he get axed <laughs> oh my god um dom um i don't know if she gets promoted or demoted here She's informed that she'll be taking his place and that she works for the Dark Army now. Initially, she refuses, but Irving reveals that he has a bit of leverage on her. Yeah, because he has the coordinates and names of every one of her family members written on his hand. He's just <laughs> reading them off of his hand while he's axe-murdering a guy. And he's kind of brutal about it. Like, you can see Santiago's blood splattering all over her face. You know one thing I want to I wanna mention here? I remember I predicted that Santiago would die this season. Yes, you did. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not gonna be like I told you so, but I want to bask in this moment for a minute. It's nice to have a right theory about this show. It rarely happens for <laughs> us. Um, this is also a very American Psycho scene because if you remember, oh, yeah. there's that Patrick Bateman scene where I think he's playing his studio and cutting a guy up with an axe in his apartment. So I think that reference here uh, that plays very well. I think one thing that disappoints me is the Dark Army really, they kind of act like an old school mafia where they're like, you know, you do what we tell you, we're going to come for your family. Mm-hmm. And I really thought they were like a more modern kind of crime syndicate. I'm like, their lack of originality, oh, I see you know, you isn't as interesting to me. Well, I just think it's interesting because it's basically the same set of circumstances that um, Santiago found himself in. So she was just being very critical of him, saying that there's nothing that could happen to her that would make her sell out like that. And then she does that, like, ten minutes later. The other part I find, like, really kind of hilarious here is when he yells, Dom, I'm going to need verbal confirmation that you understand this agreement. (laughs) So like I was saying earlier with Price, I think that it's great that Irving had uh, an opportunity to demonstrate some more range here. 
because that actor is just fantastic. He's amazing. He's really great. And I was sort of surprised to see he didn't, I believe, get nominated for a Golden Globe on this. Only Christian Slater got a nomination for the show. That was a bit of a surprise. I was pretty surprised because I think he really does a fantastic job. Especially, I like the way he tries to reassure her. You know, he does say in time this will get easier to live with. Yes. Um, so, you know, I think that I misspoken earlier because I said it was Grant's and his entourage who arrived, but it was actually Irving because Grant arrives now and meets her. Right. And so when Dawn comes back to the barn, of course, she's just white and she's covered in blood. And Leon says it looks like she's just gotten her initiation. So this is obviously kind of a routine procedure. I wonder what that hints at for Leon. I think Leon has seen some things. Yes. Um, There's a great Hannibal Burris joke where he's like, you know, people say, I'd like to be a fly on the wall. Uh He's like, you know what I'd like to be? A person that person trusted. So they would tell me what happened. (laughs) That's a great look at that. It's a bad retelling. You hear the original joke. (laughs) Sorry. There's something I wanted to point out about uh, the Leon scene. Is like he's sitting in a barn with a bunch of hay, just smoking and chilling. Which I don't Do know if you guys remember. Hazard? It is an extreme fire uh, hazard. <laughs> ash is still hot. That. Like ash is hot enough to ignite dry hay <laughs> or straw. Can you one or the other? Yes. Don't want to get into those semantics. <laughs> but I just thought that was hilarious, and because he passes, he tries to pass the dom. She's all yeah. And I was like, that's gonna light the place up, man. <laughs> it's good. Like be not in the metaphorical way. <laughs> nice one. Elliot has noticed earlier in this. Um, there is a, a webcam mounted to the roof of the barn. Yeah. So he knows they're being observed by White Rose and believes that they're not being killed because everyone in the barn is waiting for further instruction and they're waiting for someone important to arrive. It's a pretty high-tech barn. Yeah, that's the most high-tech barn I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen that many barns. I'm yes. going to be real. <laughs> there is, I think, a really great scene outside when that someone important that they're waiting for arrives. It's Grant, and he and Irving have a little chat. Yeah, this is when Grant actually arrives, because I've said that like three times now. Uh, What I really like about this scene is that um, Irving kind of demonstrates that he's a lot higher up in the Dark Army than we had first thought, because as far as Santiago goes, he just tells Grant, like, I'm sorry, I had to kill that guy, and it was a dickhead. I found it really interesting to learn that he outranks Grant, because I thought of him always as some kind of low-level cleanup guy. Me too. So he says that he's um, taking a break for his overdue sabbatical to finish his book. And what I kind of am afraid of is that this hints that he won't be present in the next season. I think that this might be like a sign of a departure for him. But he like lays his hands on Grant, starts calling the shots. And I think that what they actually hint at is that Irving used to be in Grant's position and now he's kind of like retired to this other one. I love this scene because I love when he says, you know, remember Dollface, I was you years ago. So I think he's been promoted above Grant, right? And Grant, I mean, Grant's downfall really is that he oversteps. Yes. Right? He's hungry for power and he tries to make decisions that in the hierarchy of this organization are just not his to make. And so Irving kind of puts him in his place. And it's, um, this is just a really great episode for Irving. So now, okay, we've got everybody in the barn. Who's still alive? Elliot's there, Mr. Robot, Darlene, Grant, or Grant and Leon, uh, and the goons, right? Yeah. You know, one thing I wanted to note, because you said Elliot and Mr. Robot, um, 
when they get out of the car, both of the car doors open. And I guess that's because it's technically from Elliot's perspective, so they can, like, hand wave that away. But I thought that was, like, plot hole. Mm-hmm. It's like, my immersion! <laughs> um, it becomes pretty clear that everyone knows there's no stage three. That's not going to happen. Uh, Elliot makes a play to try to get Dom and Darlene freed by telling Grant that he owns the Dark Army's whole network. Yeah, and I guess we were talking about the consequences of them imaging his laptop in that the last episode. Yeah, so because of that, he was able to infiltrate the entire Dark Army network. You know, it seemed like he pulled it off pretty easily. Grant doesn't seem very impressed by that, though, and I don't think he buys it either. He thinks it's impossible. I guess they sort of feel like uh, they're untouchable at this point. At that point, Elliot divulges a bunch of things he knows that he could only know by owning them, so that they interfered in the American election about the move about the annexation of the Congo. So again, nice tie-in to like real-life events as well as the fictional events taking place in the storyline. Um, Grant, and again, I think this is just hubris. He says, you know, we can survive a leak. Who cares? <laughs> well, that's true, and I think that that's sort of reflected in a. Uh the post-truth politics we've got going on right now, because you can kind of withstand any scandal at this point. The bar is set very low. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Uh, Elliot plays the mediator here. He says we can both win. Because he starts talking about the Congo operation. That's right. And he has a way to move the project to Congo, which has been blocked and is no end of frustration for White Rose. He says that he'll turn that over to them, basically if they allow everyone there to live. And at this point, I mean, the goons, they've seized everyone. They've got guns on everyone. Um, even Leon, who I don't think we've seen fire a gun yet. It's mostly knife work for Leon. <laughs> um, so, you know, this is this is really, like, this is do or die. You know, either he's persuasive, he's got something to offer them, or they're just going to blow them to pieces. And that that's Grant's instinct. Because he, even though his kind of ego is really unchecked. You know, he says to Elliot, why are you better than anyone else? You know, we have like binders full of you. I might have mixed my metaphors here. <laughs> but Grant says he basically played the wrong hand. This is a line to understand. He says history is coming for you. I don't really understand that either, to be honest. I don't either. This is so tense. You know, everybody... I think we think this is going to go down in some bad way. Also, when we're watching this, it's interspersed with the Price and Angela scenes. So there's a bit of contrast between this dark and dreary barn where there's a lot of tension and the more emotional, vibrant scene that is played at the same time. We get to see, this is also a nice Leon episode because uh, at this point, I guess his surprise murders are always the most interesting. <laughs> Leon shoots all the hired goons. Yeah, and you were saying that he normally is when he's using knife, so it seems like he's got some gun skills too. He seems like a versatile foot soldier. (laughs) Although I'm starting to, I mean, I think his rank is above that of a foot soldier. I'm not really sure what he'd be considered here. I think so, too. Now, the only people left alive are Elliot, Darlene, and Grant. And Grant gets a phone call. Which is from White Rose. Now, this is the most understated and overstated breakup of all time. (laughs) What happens next? Because White Rose is doing it from her bathtub. Yeah, White Rose has been observing from her bathtub, where she's got a full face of makeup on, extraordinary <laughs> composure, White Rose. Um, basically, says to Grant, you could never see my plan through to the end. Um, you know, he always underestimated Elliot's value. The one who's played the wrong hand here is Grant. 
And so White Rose says, I'll find you when our project is complete. But for the here and now, our time has come to an end. So she got some wins. So definitely hinting at some more alternate reality, weird sci-fi stuff. I think that White Rose is fully bought into this, and it seems like all of the Dark Army agents are as well. This kind of reveals why they're so content to kill themselves when necessary, because, or even when not necessary, to be honest, because they think that they'll be able to come back. I've actually just listened to this really great podcast, Heaven's Gate, with Glenn Washington. Oh man, I've heard of that. It's so good, but it kind of talks about how in cults, you know, they, the leader ultimately convinces everyone to, they refer to it as leaving their vehicles to leave their bodies. Wow. And um, have mass suicide. And part of me thinks, oh, is that kind of a component of what Dark Army is? They've got this charismatic leader with this, you know, delusional vision, but who's leading them all towards this terrible end. There are a lot of podcasts about cults right now for some reason. I think that um, it's because of Charles Manson, who's kind of been in the news a lot recently. But as far as Heaven's Gate, um, they have a website that's still active, super, super, super creepy. And in fact, um, they commit mass suicide, but I believe a few people like stayed behind to continue evangelizing this weird like cult religion after everybody else had died. Oh, interesting. They did an AMA on Reddit once. So Grant, um, having received this information does what all good Dark Army soldiers do. He shoots himself in the head, but he says something in Mandarin first. And we had to look this up, so thank you good people of Reddit, um, because this is the only Mandarin in the episode that's not translated into a subtitle for the viewer. I wonder if that might be because it was from Elliot's perspective and he doesn't speak Mandarin, like that German dude in the elevator earlier. Oh, perhaps that makes sense, right? As opposed to it being from our perspective. But or from Mydose's perspective. Right, that makes sense. And so what Grant does say is basically something to the effect of take good care of her. Did you use Google Translate for that or did you just find it on Reddit? I just found it on Reddit. I wonder if they if that's actually what it means or if they pull a trick on you like those people who get tattoos that say poop or something. We'll wait for independent verification of the <laughs> translation. I just because I can't, t I don't know how to type in those characters. So. I don't either. Um, uh, some, some knowledge deficits on the Mr. Rewatch team. Um, <laughs> So everyone who's still there is allowed to live. So what's interesting to me here is because, remember, I have felt the Darlene character has been quite diminished this season. Mm -hmm. I don't know if she's being allowed to live because she has value or because she's something that they can hold over Elliot's head all of the time. Well, what Grant had said was that Darlene is how he can keep him honest. And so for whatever reason, uh, she is also allowed to continue on. But Leon tells Elliot that he's got to pay up. What's that mean? Well, he pulls out then a laptop. And Elliot needs to go to work on this Congo project. Oh, yes. Uh, and what I like is that Mr. Robot kind of leans in and he's like, you can actually do this, right? Like, <laughs> we, we can pull this off right now, um, which Elliot can. Uh, and so basically he's able to save all of their lives um, by giving the Dark Army what they want. Cool. And of course, there's going to be some future consequence. No kidding. So is this the time when they all leave the barn and hop into the car? Yes. So at first it's just, I think it's just Dom and Elliot in the car. Notable because I think this is the first scene they've had where it's just the two of them together. Of course, Dom knows a lot about Elliot, but they've never really met face to face. That's true, right? Because they'd always held off on bringing him in. So they haven't had any interaction before today. She logs him into Sentinel with the goal of undoing the 5-9 hack. And she says, don't think I'm doing this for you. I know that too, because she's not really in a great mood right now. And she just is about to take off before Darlene interrupts her. So she confronts Darlene. What did you think Darlene wanted to say to her first? Because she kind of interrupts her. Oh, I don't know. What do you think? 
I think that she wanted to apologize for manipulating her. I'd like to think that's true. I think Darlene has a conscience, and I think Darlene also makes a difference between manipulating someone, say, like Alexander Jones, where she sleeps with him to get his gun and all that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. and screwing up somebody like Dom, who I think she genuinely likes in spite of the work that Dom does. Oh, yeah. I think that they actually kind of um, saw a bit of themselves in each other's personalities. So for Dom to be betrayed like this probably stings a little more than it normally would. Well, and for Dom, remember, she's now lost everything. So. And that's what she says, you've taken everything from me and my whole life is ruined because of you. She sort of spells it out and just says, you are a terrible person. This actually really reminds me of the scene where, you know, Elliot as Sam Sepiel rips into Bill. Oh, you know, I thought you were going to talk about when Angela first meets White Rose, because you're a terrible person is like the first thing she says about the dumb Oh, fish. that's right. No, this just reminds me because Dom at some point says, live with that, die with that. It reminded me of people who had to attend your funeral would choose to leave oh, early. God. That was such a good quote. <laughs> <laughs> but you're a terrible person. That's actually a very good uh, echo back. It totally is. So, you know, one thing I was wondering here, Dom takes off now with just Dirley and Elliot in the car. Do either of them have a license? I can't imagine that they do. You know, <laughs> I just I just can't see them being that, you know, like the kind of people who get driver's licenses and take trips to the country, you know? So Elliot uses some... Is this when he starts hacking Romero? Yes. Yeah. So there's something I wanted to mention here because it's pretty cool, actually. And um, it's about cracking passwords. Normally, if I have a password that I want to crack, the most general way to do it is to perform a dictionary attack where you just basically like iterate over every word and kind of like try and make combinations of words using lead speak and things like that to find out what the word is from the dictionary or from some other source material. What's difficult with this is that you need to test a lot of possibilities that are probably totally irrelevant. So what Elliot does is um, he uses his knowledge of Romero's personality to kind of build up a limited dictionary of passwords to test. And what he does is looks up um, song lyrics because it turns out that that is what Romero uses for his passwords. What I like about this moment is I think that this undoing of 5-9 in a way is Trenton's legacy. Oh yeah, it totally is. Because she's facilitated this. Which is sad to think about because she's been pinned for the attack to begin with. Exactly. But Romero is not actually the one who exported the data. He was just snooping. (laughs) Nope. I guess this is another twist for this episode. I feel like Romero would snoop on the others, too. Well, he had reason to be suspicious of all of them, to be honest, because Mr. Robot, like, threatened to shoot him a lot. <laughs> yeah, and then, too, and he was also sort of the most experienced, like, he was the, the elder statesman of F-Society, right? Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Uh, someone else exported the data, and that's the last scene that we see in the car, because next we have Elliot and Darlene on the subway, and there are, like, armed guards walking around, you know, all those curfew announcements are still happening. So this next conversation... This is the only part of the episode that doesn't exactly sit right with me. Which part are you talking about? Uh, Darlene says, why did you bring up Kevin McAllister? Oh, you know, I actually don't have notes for like the first half of this conversation. If That's you okay. Want to keep I'll that talk going. all about it. <laughs> um, and Elliot says to her, so Darlene says, why did you bring up Kevin McAllister? Elliot says to her, That's the day that dad pushed me out the window. Uh, okay. Darlene was there and basically says Elliot just lost his shit, started swinging a baseball bat around, and eventually jumped out of the window. This is another one of those fan theories, actually. Is it? Yeah. He doesn't remember any of that. 
And I just, I, I'm trying to figure out what the, what the story purpose of this is, right? Because it rehabilitates Mr. Robot for us, right? Mm-hmm. If that was sort of the time that his villainy began, right? As this kind of bad dad. Mm-hmm. But now, are we still supposed to trust the stories about, you know, the abusive mom? Good point. Uh, what, what do we make? And why would Elliot misremember such a thing? Maybe it will become clear in the future. I don't understand the point of yeah. setting that up and then walking it back. It seems kind of like a mindfuck for the sake of a mindfuck, but I guess it was hinted at when he um, mentioned this to Krista and she hadn't heard about it. Oh, maybe that's true. Anyway, I don't know what to make of that yet. Yeah, well, I guess the main point that it has for us right now in this moment is that it makes us feel a little bit better about Edward R. Lucid. That's true. You feel real bad about all the times I slagged that guy, probably. Yeah, and this makes us feel pretty bad because there's that uh, flashback scene in the cinema, and we're under the impression that Elliot's really angry at his dad because he just pushed him out the window. But I guess what he's actually angry about is either his misremembering that event or the, the sickness that he has to keep secret. How do you interpret that? Well, now I could see both of those possibilities, right? When I couldn't see them before. So now we have Mr. Robot and Elliot in an empty subway car, and then Elliot invites him to go for a walk with him. What he says is actually a reference to what uh, Mr. Owet says to Elliot in the pilot. This is actually like a, a fairly direct reference to how they first meet up. But this time it's Elliot who says, I think you should come with me. Because Mr. Robot was the one who exported the keys, and he did so because he thought Elliot would have wanted to do that. Yeah, when they were talking in the Ferris wheel earlier, Elliot was saying that he was afraid of the part of him that is Mr. Robot, but they also talk a bit about how, correspondingly, Mr. Robot has some part of Elliot. So this is what they're getting at there. They do still have a fundamental disagreement where Mr. Robot does not want to undo the hack, but Elliot, for his own conscience, needs to do this. I don't really understand Mr. Robot's play at this moment, to be honest. I think um, his character storyline is kind of getting a little bungled up. Do you have the same interpretation? I don't know what he wants anymore. I don't know what he wants anymore either. And also he might want something different than he wanted before he understood more fully what was happening. I can see it that way. Um, here we get another really nice echo back to the back to the pilot because Elliot talks about the only good thing here is the true villains have shown themselves, the top 1% of the 1%. And I think the line, the ones who play God without permission is directly yeah. from that episode. And so he says he's going to take them down. Also significant to this is that Mr. Robot wants them to be a team, and I think there's buy-in for that. I'm really curious to see how that's going to play out. They get off the train. Um, there's the street preachers. There's all the garbage. Did you note the, what was appearing on the television? No, what was appearing on the television? I haven't seen the movie, but it was a, super, a Superman movie where the climax involves time travel. Oh, yeah, because doesn't he have to try to save Lois Lane? By... I've never seen it, or anything to do with Superman. I think it's Superman 4. Superman 4? How many yeah, are there? And then there's four. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, like, he flies the opposite direction of the Earth's rotation, and it, like, turns time back. Wow. I don't think that's how physics works, but okay. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't be criticizing the physics in Superman. Yeah, yeah, just take your kryptonite and be quiet. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was so bossy. That's good. <laughs> uh, I don't normally talk that way. Um, Mr. Robot explains he had exported the key data in case they were wrong. And also that only Elliot knows why he's here. What does that mean? Well, I think it alludes to, you know, I think we thought he was maybe haunted by his dead abusive father. But now, you know, 
why does Elliot rely on this other identity to make him a whole identity? Uh Only Elliot knows, and we don't understand it the way we used to understand it now that all this information has been revealed to us, right? Okay, that helps me understand. The information that he needs is embedded in a picture on that blank CD back at the apartment. Yeah, and the picture is, of course, another time travel reference. (laughs) Yes, because it's the two of them dressed up um, as Back to the Future characters for Halloween. I just want to call out again because I think it's so cool and interesting how he uses um, steganography to hide messages inside images instead of having like uh, something that obviously looks like ciphertext. Do you want to explain steganography for people who didn't hear that episode of the podcast? Oh, I guess I can. It's really simple because it's basically just um, instead of trying to conceal your message as like random bytes, you try and conceal the fact that you're sending a message at all because you, um, if somebody notices you sending encrypted text, they'll probably want to try and figure out what that is. But steganography, like embedding your message inside an image or something like that, can evade that suspicion. And the most primitive form of steganography, which dates way back to ancient times, is when somebody would tattoo a message onto somebody's body, allow their hair to grow out, send them to a distant village or something, and then shave their head. Bananas. <laughs> He opens up an email, and I wondered if you understood this reference. The The email address is Falcon's Maze at something. I noticed that, and I knew that it must have been an Easter egg for something, but I didn't catch what it was. Oh, by the way, in the last episode, when there was that woman in the car with Irving, do you know what I'm talking about? I knew that that had to have been some like guest star who references something, but I didn't know who it was. It turns out it's a voice actor from the video game Overwatch. So I bet that this is some kind of reference to you, but I'm just not picking up on it. And so, I mean, this brings us to the end of the episode. Elliot is poised to undo 5-9. A lot of people have died. Um, yeah, I guess you can't really turn that turn that back. <laughs> the one thing I am really excited about is I don't feel like Dom was well used as a character this season. Now I see they're kind of lying in wait for what I assume is going to be a much more complex, bigger storyline for her. So I yeah. am truly excited to see how that shapes up they're taking, season four. They're taking the Python approach. Oh, uh, nice. <laughs> nice. Well, anyway, um, so that brings us to the end of the third season. Um, thank you so much for listening to the show. We're going to be releasing some post-season content uh, intermittently. And, of course, we'll be back for season four. Thanks a lot for listening to the season finale of Mr. Rewatch. We recorded this episode in Toronto. If you enjoyed our episode today, We'd encourage you to consider contributing to a Stay Out of the Cold program uh, to help get folks off of the streets uh, in this cold and lousy weather uh, in your community. I'm Devin. And I'm Erin. Bonsoir. Oh, wait. Okay. Okay. We got one more scene. As we come to expect from these season finales. I know. You guys are probably tired of how surprised and excited (laughs) I always sound. Is it hard to act surprised like that? No. No. Do you guys think of something surprising? Well, I'm always really surprised at what happens in these scenes, so it feels very genuine. So we see kind of a classic car driving down the street, and Darlene is walking with a sex worker who actually made an appearance earlier in the season. <laughs> I thought that was really cool. I do like that they brought, they brought because it was a very small role. <laughs> it was a back. small role, but I think like everybody noticed it, too. Yeah, true, <laughs> true. Um, Darlene is uncharacteristically optimistic trying to assure her new friend that things are going to get better yeah because she kind of has some information that the rest of the world is not privy to just yet 
she thinks that if they can persevere just a little bit longer, then E Corp, uh, or rather the 5 9 attack, will be reversed. Of course, her friend does not agree because apparently at this stage the U.S. is attacking Iran. So remember, there had been a false Iranian connection made to 5 9, so they're actively attacking them. Um, I also love that this person says, you know, it's not going to help us all if our debt comes back on top of everything else that happened. Like, read some Marx before you go spouting <laughs> out economic theory. That's not how crony capitalism works. I actually loved how, uh, like, smart this character was. I hope this character will come back. I be really cool. liked um, the segue. And I also, like, I think Darlene could use a friend. To be honest, I feel like the two characters immediately had some really good, like, uh, character chemistry. I do, too. So I, I don't know the name of that character, but I would like to see them again. So one thing before we get too far, they walk past some graffiti of um, Vladimir Putin, but he has, like, makeup and there are rainbows and stuff, and it's supposed to be criticism of the homophobia that exists in Russia. Um, that picture pissed off Putin so much that he banned it in all of Russia. So this is really like Sam Esmail kind of giving them the finger. Man, that guy is so smart. Um, so remember that classic car that had been driving down the street almost hit the two people earlier? Yep, same one comes right back up. Yeah, it stops right in front of Elliot's building that Darlene is preparing to enter, and at that point her friend disappears. There's some super cool camera work here because it kind of follows all of the characters as they're walking up to Darlene, but you don't reveal the identity until the last moment. And even as he's talking, I kept thinking, I know that voice. Who is that voice? <laughs> well, it's easy to forget because this character hasn't appeared since the first season. And I think, like, what is the value of their character at this point? I feel like they're small fries now that they're talking about, like, destroying countries. <laughs> Well, and that's what I have to wonder what's going to happen with this character. And so it's Vera. He's back. He's spouting the same kind of pseudo-metaphysical, spiritual uh, wisdom he spouts earlier in the series. So you know what I want to relate this to is the post-credits scene from the last season, because that featured Trenton and Mowgli. We know what happened to them in the next season. They kind of were absent for most of it. They appeared, then they died. But they did have a sort of pivotal role in the season, even if they weren't that active in it themselves. If they kind of follow the same formula, and I am sort of noticing formulas in each of the seasons as they're going forward, I suspect that Vera will come back for like an episode or two and die. Like either he's going to be like main cast or he's going to die. <laughs> exactly, because he could go the Leon route where he becomes fairly central or not but he's a brave traveler who's finally come home i'm very curious to see what's going to happen once he knocks on elliot's door in season four 